good to be with you tonight. A blessing to uh, be away just for a short few days. Lily and I going up to see my sister and my cousin and one of my old band members from the days when I played in the Christian band Contender and uh, had a real nice, short but nice and pleasant weekend visiting and glad to be back, kind of coming back. It's one of the reasons normally on a third Wednesday of the month I'd have a prophecy update, but I didn't know if I would be up to preparing. It takes a little bit to get the prophecy updates out. So my plan, unless the Lord changes my mind, we only have four chapters in the book of Leviticus left. I'm going to handle two of them tonight. I plan to finish it next week. And then the week following, we'll do a prophecy update on events going on in the world and how they might fit into biblical prophecy. And we'll see where the Lord takes me. I, I just, as a Calvary Chapel pastor, it's a blessing and the method that we do ministry and the teaching of God's word is to go through the Bible. And right now we are in the Gospels on Sunday mornings. And in Wednesday evenings, we've done Genesis, Exodus, going to be finishing up Leviticus. And if the Lord should tarry, we'll head into the book of Numbers. So I always know what text I'll be teaching from each week. And I can kind of prepare for that and prepare my heart to teach from these passages of Scripture. But with the prophecy update, it's totally different. And kind of wait upon the Lord to give me a a text, I won't even like to say to springboard off of, but uh, I think the Lord has been faithful to kind of put something on my heart that's able to tie some of these things together with the Word of God, and that's what we want to do with the Prophecy Update. So plan will be, at this point, two chapters tonight in Leviticus, next week finish up the book of Leviticus, and then take a break to do a prophecy update before we continue on into the book of Numbers. And uh, yeah, we'll just kind of leave it at that. As I was saying those words, I was thinking we'll be in October and what do you do with the prophecy update then? I don't know. But in two weeks, we'll plan to get to that prophecy update. So last week, the study closed by rehearsing God's requirements for Israel to keep the weekly Sabbaths and the seven annual feasts that are named in Leviticus 23. So we have some real key verses, and I hope to be able to do a little bit of a review next week because we really have some great divisions of the book of Leviticus, and I just want to point these out. Uh, at the end of next week, I'll highlight a couple of things here in a moment because I fear that many in the church kind of shy away from the book of Leviticus. It's the book of laws. It all has to do with Israel. What's it got to do with us today? Well, we learn about the Levitical priesthood. We learn about the offerings, Jesus Christ's fulfillment of uh, not only the sacrificial offering, the Day of Atonement. He has become our atonement. He has become our Passover, and he is the great high priest. So I think the book of Leviticus gives us a greater understanding of Jesus. And we have the rehearsing of the 
offerings, uh, Leviticus 1 through 5, and then 6 and 7. We have, so I, I deemed Leviticus 1 through 5, the worshiper's handbook, uh, 6 and 7, the priest's handbook. Uh, we get into 10 through 15, we kind of get into this narrative portion of the book of Leviticus, but it really talks about uh, holiness versus unholiness, or that which is clean versus unclean. And then we have the high point of the book of Leviticus is Leviticus 16, which is all about the Day of Atonement. And then as we descend from that high point, we get into 17. I've already mentioned Leviticus 17:11, the importance of the blood as God has given the blood to atone for our souls. But in 17 through 27, 27 is a little bit of a stretch uh, because it goes into more of a narrative at that point and helps us to understand uh, practical aspects of the law. But especially 17 through 26, we have a contrast between the profane and the holy as God is requiring holiness. But there in Leviticus 23, we were given feast days, seven annual feast days. We went through those, but I briefly mentioned that the Jewish community celebrates nine feast days. I named them, but had two people text or message me saying, what were those other two feast days that you quickly named and didn't explain? So I'm going to name them and explain them right now. If you want to read the other seven feast days, just read Leviticus 23. The two that I mentioned were Hanukkah and Purim. And Hanukkah, well, in order, it would be Purim. That actually came from the story of Esther and Queen Esther, Haman, and uh, Mordecai, and the devising of Haman to wipe out, annihilate the Jews on a single day in a single month to destroy all of Israel because he hated Esther's uncle, Mordecai. He didn't know that Queen Esther's uncle was Mordecai, but he hated him. Not only wanted to see Mordecai die, but the whole nation die. And he concocted this plot, got the king's permission to act out the plot and by lying and saying that it was an enemy of the king. And once the law was set into place, even the king couldn't change it. But once it was revealed what was actually going on, Mordecai and Esther caused the king to issue another decree that the Jews could merely defend themselves to counter the uh, attack against them. And they were delivered from the wicked plot of Haman. And he was hung on the, um, the gallows that he had built for Mordecai. And from that time forward, the Feast of Purim is celebrated two days. They're still celebrated on the 14th day of Adar, the Jewish name of this, in the wall cities on the 15th day of all other cities. But Purim was celebrated this year on March 17th. And it includes giving food to the needy, giving to charity, listening to the book of Esther in the synagogue. Sometimes the whole story is acted out by children, children dressing up much like we might see 
around the time of Halloween here in America, they, during Purim, will dress up like the king or queen or Mordecai or wicked Haman. And to this day, Purim is a time of feasting and joy, remembering the deliverance that God gave the children of Israel while they were in captivity. And so before, I mean, part of Israel was brought back already, but this was a celebration of the deliverance of Israel from a wicked plot against them. So still celebrated this year, it was March 17th, and that is not found in Scripture, although the story of Esther is found in Scripture, and we have that celebration, that feast day. They celebrated, sure, they were delivered, but it's become an annual feast day since that time. Hanukkah actually happens uh, in, in the accounts of what a lot of the Bibles deem. I'm trying to open up the middle of, well, not the middle of my Bible, but between the Old and New Testament. Now, mine just has a blank page between the two. But some of them, the Bibles, might have written in there 400 silent years. Well, Hanukkah took place during the 400 silent years. It is referred to in the New Testament as the Feast of Dedication. When John tells us in John 10:22, now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, it was winter. It's also referred to as the Festival of Lights or the Feast of Lights. And it is a holiday that is recorded for us in Maccabee 1, or 1st Maccabees, when the altar was rededicated to the Lord after it had been uh, decimated and I'm trying to think of the king who had conquered them at that time, but uh, not coming to my mind. But the king had offered, uh, it's getting there, it's coming. The king had offered <laughs> a pig on the altar and so uh, did not allow the Jews to worship in the temple and uh, the Maccabees revolt and they came and took back the city, cleansed the temple and went to light the menorah and, they, and it, we're going to be talking about the menorah tonight. They only had enough oil for one day, one day's worth of light. But it took eight days to prepare the oil for the menorah. It was a special oil that was only used there in the temple and only for the light there in the temple. And yet they lit it on the first day and the lamps burned until the eighth day until they were able to resupply the oil. And so the miracle of the menorah is remembered around the time of Christmas. Uh, this year it will go from December 18th to the 26th, so right over the Christmas holiday. And it is the festival of lights, the lighting of these candles each night in the center candle, lighting the other eight candles, one each night to celebrate when God allowed this miracle to take place in the temple. Antiochus Epiphanes was the one who took the temple and desecrated it there with offering a pig upon the altar. And so the two celebrations, Purim and Hanukkah, not 
mentioned in Scripture. Purim is very close in the book of Esther. We get the story of it. And Hanukkah comes from between the Old and New Testament and events that took place during that time. So tonight, we are going to continue our look through Leviticus 17 through 26. These chapters have been deemed by the theologians as the holiness code. So that which is between the profane and that which is holy. In these chapters, God gave Israel moral and sacred laws to help guide them in their every, everyday lives, that they might be holy. In fact, the Lord said in Leviticus 19, 1 and 2, the Lord speaking to Moses said, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So God is now dwelling in the midst of Israel. The tabernacle has been set up. It's been dedicated. The sacrificial offerings now taking place. And now God is giving Israel instruction how they might live in the presence of the holy and awesome God who had redeemed them. And so we find that there is both faith and community in Leviticus 24. That's the title I gave to this chapter. And I gave a key verse from verse 15. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Now we'll get to that in the third point of this chapter. But the first two points deal with the tabernacle and the supply of the people and their participation, really, it doesn't talk about the people and their per participation so much in these things, but we understand by reading other portions of Scripture that the supply of the oil, as we mentioned about Hanukkah, the supply of the oil came from the people for the lamps there in the holy place of the temple, and the grain offerings, from the grain offerings came the showbread or the bread of presence that was placed in the temple every week on the Sabbath, 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. So there is the faith, but also the community at play where the whole community is participating in the worship there and the care for the temple itself through these offerings that ultimately would be administered there in the temple by the priest in caring for the menorah and changing out the showbread. These things that the common people, I mean, if you were not of the Arianic priesthood, you did not go into the holy place of the temple. And the closest you could ever get to it during the time of the wilderness wanderings was when they packed everything up, put covers over everything, put the poles, and sometimes those poles just remained in the furniture itself, but were carried by the Levites, and they would see the different sections, though covered, different sections of the tabernacle, but never allowed to see these things, but knowing that they were there in the presence of the Lord, the community participated first by the oil. And so we read in verses 1 through 4, and I deem this the oil of the holy lamp. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring to you pure oil of pressed olives for the light, 
to make the lamps burn continually outside the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting Aaron shall be in charge of it from evening until morning before the Lord continually it shall be a statue forever in all your generations he shall be in charge of the lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually and so that is the charge that as you entered into the holy place of the tabernacle or the temple the menorah was stationed to the left or on the south side of the holy place so the first room that you entered into there was only two rooms in the tabernacle the first room was deemed the holy place and then the second chamber was the holy of holies and only the high priest could go into the holy of holies on the day of atonement only once a year but daily the priest would minister inside the holy place and one of the daily ministries that they had was caring for the menorah and so it tells us that the lamp should burn continually i'll talk about that for a moment but in our sense it was a trimming of the wicks the putting a log of oil in each of the menorah's uh, lamps that they would burn through the night so from we could say from the evening sacrifice until the morning sacrifice but they're caring for that seven-armed oiled lamp that was hammered out of according to scripture 75 pounds of pure gold all the other furnishing in the holy place the ark of the covenants the mercy seat the altar of incense the table of showbread they were all made uh, with acacia wood and then overlaid with gold but the lampstand was of pure gold i'd seen the um, reduplication of the menorah in israel by the temple institute when we were over in israel a big huge very tall menorah uh, but it was cast in bronze and overlaid with gold so they say what i was reading from Tem temple institute today that there's about three million dollars worth of gold there but this was um, 75 pounds of pure gold at the close of yesterday's market the menorah then would value at two million a little over just barely a little over two million dollars in fact gold went up a little bit it was just under two million the day before i've been watching maybe we need to buy some gold it's heading upward ticking upward but those only uh, part of the arianic priesthood could tend the menorah trim its wicks resupply its oil that it might burn continually and most likely referring to between that evening and morning sacrifice that the light would be burning inside exodus 27 20 says and you shall command the children of israel that they bring to you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually so i was kind of wondering about this burning continually did it burn during the daytime only at night i'm pretty convinced that it was only from evening until the morning sacrifice except i learned something today i love to learn things that i hadn't known before looking at jewish tradition in regard to this 
that there is one light that is referred to as the western lamp that burns consistently through the day as well as the night. And they kind of debate as to which light was the western light, and they would basically said, well, it just depends on which way the menorah was set up in the holy place. If it's set up from east to west, and then the western lamp, pretend I have seven fingers up here, could either be the second lamp, the east being the close, and the second lamp deemed the western, or the seventh lamp on the other side, but I only have five fingers to show you that. Um, but if it's set up this way in the tabernacle, then the center lamp, they would say, would lean toward the west. But the idea of this, even though they don't know which exactly was the western lamp, was that it burned continually. And some of the, the Talmud teaches that the light itself and the other lamps would burn on that log of oil only through the night, but the western lamp on the same amount of oil would burn also through the day, and it was from that light that they would light the other lamps. So uh, one lamp burning continually, and the miracle of the lamp itself. And then we find that the oil itself, I love this, we learned this when we were in Exodus learning about this anointing oil, that that first pressing of the olive oil was to only get like a drop or two of oil out of the olive, not to crush it, just to get that first drop, and that first maybe two drops, and that was it. Got two drops, give me another olive. It would take a while to get any amount of oil, right? But you have the whole nation working on this too, everybody bringing their supply and they were able to join in the worship by supplying this pure olive oil for the lamp of the menorah. In the Bible, the oil represents the Holy Spirit, while light represents Jesus Christ. In verses 5 through 9, we have the bread of presence and the table of showbread, where the word tells us, you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it. Two tenths of an ephod shall be each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six in a row, on the pure table before the Lord. So the table of showbread that's in the holy place. Verse 7, you shall put pure frankincense on each row, and it shall be on the bread before me, uh, before a memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath, he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by the everlasting covenant. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire, a perpetual statute. Once again, it's faith and community, and the people are participating in this because the cakes itself came out of the grain offerings that were given there at the temple and then they were baked and prepared uh, for the bread of presence also called uh, actually the bread of the presence that was placed and ordered in two rolls uh, six rolls six bread in each roll 12 in all 
with frankincense being sprinkled over the top of them as well. And Exodus 25:30, you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. So I pulled this um, from gotquestions.com. What is the bread of the presence? And they have five points about the bread of the presence. First, made of fine flour. Number two, baked in 12 loaves. Three, arranged in two piles of six loaves on the pure table of gold. Four, covered with frankincense. Five, served as a memorial food offering to the Lord. So the frankincense was used to make the holy incense, used for the meal and grain offerings, and here sprinkled on the bread of the presence. Uh, as far as being part of that offering, frankincense in Leviticus 2.1, whenever a grain offering was offered to the Lord, his offering shall be with fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. And so this was a natural part of that. It really uh, made me think of two things about Jesus. And we always want to try to relate these to the Lord if we are able to. One, that Jesus is the bread of life. And number two, when the Magi came to visit Jesus when he was a baby, one of the gifts that they brought was frankincense. In John 6:48, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And right now, the Lord Jesus Christ is in the presence of the Father in the Holy of Holies of the temple that is in heaven. But also we know the Magi, when they came, they, in Matthew 2.11, opened their treasures and presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so that frankincense, even as part of the offering that was given to Jesus Christ at his birth. So God and Israel's community in verses 10 through 23 to close out this chapter, we have a brief narrative portion in the book of Leviticus. And so this is telling us a story. It's a narrative. Uh, it's not a giving of law. It's not commands. It's narrative. And there's only another narrative section found in Leviticus is found in chapters 8 through 10. But here we have the situation. We'll begin in verses 10 through 14. Now the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the children of Israel and this Israelite woman's son, a man of Israel, fought each other in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. And so they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shilomith, the daughter of Debri, from the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody, and the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, verse 14, Take outside the camp him who has cursed. Let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. So the man's crime was that he blasphemed the name of Yahweh. In Exodus 20, verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So all the people, God gave the Ten Commandments first to all the nation of Israel. He spoke it to them in their hearing. Afterwards, Moses would ascend the mountain, receive the law, 
on the two tablets of stone, come back down the mountain, see the mess that Aaron made with the people and the golden calf, break the two tablets, um, grind up the golden calf, make the people drink from it. The Levites would go out and kill 3,000 people. Moses head up to the mountain again, this time with two blank tablets, and God would fill in those tablets for him. But God spoke first the commandments in the hearing of all the people. So they knew that they were not to take the name of the Lord their God in vain. But the question was, now that someone has dared to do this, what do we do about it? So in an outburst of anger, a man blasphemed Yahweh in the hearing of many witnesses. It's kind of how it is sometimes for many of us, right? You might have your language very controlled, but something will happen that might draw words out of your mouth that you did not plan to say. Most recent something that happened to me was a few years ago in 2019 when a sledgehammer came down on my ring finger on my left hand and um, split the two bones right up the middle, flattened it, it did look flat, and blew the side of my finger out. It was gross. The most common thing people ask, so Pastor John, what'd you say? They want to know the words that came out of my mouth. You'll just have to wonder. <laughs> yeah. Well, the outburst of anger was heard in this side. It was blasphemy against Yahweh. I did not blaspheme the Lord. I did not use his name in vain. But I probably used a replacement word that I shouldn't have used. But give me a sledgehammer in your finger and let's see what happens with you. We'll, we'll try it on you and see what comes out. So they brought him before Moses. Moses inquired of the Lord, and the Lord gave judgment. The people who heard him blaspheme had to lay their hands on his head as a testimony against him. It could be that if they did not lay their hands, and this is me just thinking about this, if they did not lay their hands on his head because they had heard what was said, then they would have been associated with his guilt. And so thus, they in one sense said yes, this is what we heard, but also they were transferring anything that could have been held to them for not exposing the crime. They exposed it by laying their hands upon the person's head. And then the whole congregation was to stone him. Now, historically, when God began new works in the Bible, both the Old and New Testament, harsher judgments usually came down. This is one of those harsher judgments. In the church, when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit about the offering that they had given to the Lord. They had sold a piece of property because Barnabas had sold property and gave all the proceeds to the church. He was nicknamed the son of encouragement. I guess they liked his nickname. They wanted to be called the uh, husband and wife of encouragement. They wanted a similar nickname, but they acted like they gave everything when they held back part. Now, Peter said to them, you could have held back part. You didn't have to give it all. But the sin was, they even drew it out. They showed up at the church one at a time. 
That way they can get longer praise, right, of the people? The sin was, is that they acted like they gave all when they did not, and the Holy Spirit judged them and they died on the spot. So sometimes, historically, scripturally, Old and New Testament, we have these incidents when harsher judgments come down at the beginning of a work of the Lord. Because it is a reminder that the Lord wants purity out of his body. So the reinforcing of the law then, this gives way to verses 15 through 22 when you speak to the children of Israel saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes in the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. A stranger as well as him who is born in the land, when he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. Whoever kills any man shall be surely put to death. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, animal for animal. If a man causes defigurements of his neighbor as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, as he has caused disfigurement of a man, so it shall be done to him. I just keep getting this picture of these brat uh, kids in our streets today just coming up and cold cocking someone from the back and just knocking them out and crushing their skull. Well, if it was Bible days, they would be unexpectedly dropped to the ground in the same way, and it probably would stop all that nonsense. Hey, you knocked my tooth out. Which one do you want out? Oh, it was the front tooth? I'm getting the front tooth on you. So whoever kills an animal, it shall be restored. Whoever kills a man shall be put to death. 22, if you have the same law for the stranger and one is in your own com country, for I am the Lord your God. So it was um, the laws of retribution given at that time. The punishment should fit the crime. Now think about this. I, I was reading in um, a commentary on the book of Exodus and Leviticus uh, and so not reading and preparing for this message, but this applies in the message itself. The author was just stating about the crimes that they didn't have prisons like we have, you know, a place for people to go get, spend 20 years to get reformed and stuff. They just dealt with things. And if it was worthy of death, they were put to death. If it was worthy of uh, the criminal having to do restitution to restore, then they would have to do that. And so it is called the law of retribution. And so God just placed it in here in this narrative to the, remind the people that it's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. They were not to have anarchy, but equal justice under the law. That's another thing that we find that is not happening in our country right now, that there is not equal justice. And sadly, here in the state of Illinois, this is a freebie, not part of the prophecy update, but we have a law coming in in January called the Safety Act, and there'll be less justice for those who commit crime. And our streets might just become more dangerous coming 2023. 
So God gave laws to keep Israel from becoming like the lawless nations around them. These judgments were not to be disproportionate to the crime. While the Mosaic law taught an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, Jesus in the New Testament taught us to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile. Sometimes in the flesh we like the eye for an eye, the tooth for a tooth. Sometimes it's hard to turn the other cheek. I will not teach this as from the Word of God, but my dad, Pastor John, taught his son, not a pastor yet, I was just a boy, and he told me, and the Bible says, somebody strikes you in the cheek, turn the other cheek for to them, but it does not say what to do after that. So dad taught me to defend myself. Two strikes and game on. That's the world I grew up in, and I think it settled a lot of issues that are not being settled today. As believers, though, God's word should affect both our outward action and our inward beings. And so sometimes we don't and we shouldn't counter in kind, but sometimes we may be put in those situations where we must defend ourselves and defend our family. So upholding the law, verse 23, Moses spoke to the children of Israel. They took outside the camp him who had cursed, stoned him with stones. So the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded him. This was the first time that the third law of the Ten Commandments was tested. And it just so happens to be that the man was, uh, I put quarter, but half Egyptian. But that was not the issue. It was fine that he... Uh, had an Egyptian father and an Israeli mother. The issue was that he had cursed Yahweh. Race was not the issue, but blasphemy in the name of Yahweh was. And as a result, it cost this man his life. He was put outside the camp to bear his own sin. So sacred was and is the name of God to Israel. But I say was because in the writing of the Old Testament and in the Torah and some of the Old Testament books and scribes that we had from times past, that they never spoke his name, nor did they write it out completely. So they never put in the vowel sounds. There may be one vowel sound that's found three times in the Bible that would give us a Y-A-H, but it's the... Y-H-W-H, from which we get the term Yahweh or Jehovah. But we don't have that true name of God that was given by God to Moses to tell the children of Israel because they so revered it. Even today in uh, Jewish literature, if they write the name of God in English, it's G uh, underscore D. They just leave out that middle initial. They know that middle letter, they know what that letter is, but they leave it out in reverence to God. So the way they get uh, Jehovah or Yahweh is they take the YHWH and they take the name for the Lord Adonai and they take the vowels of Adonai and insert them to give us the uh, Yahweh or Jehovah. And so that's where we get our vowels from. We're not sure the correct spelling of it. In reality, though, we've all broken one or all the laws of God. 
And to break one law is to break them all. We're all deserving of death. But thankfully, Yahweh has made a way of escape through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul said of his own life in 1 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, although I was formerly a blasphemer, this guy was put to death for blasphemy. Paul said, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. It is my prayer that we each could say the same, that we were formerly blasphemers who have found grace through faith in the name of Jesus Christ. So the year of Jubilee, Leviticus 25, the year of Jubilee, I found this interesting. Um, I looked up Jubilee in my Bible concordance, and it only appears in that term, title only appears in Leviticus 25, Leviticus 27, and one other place in Numbers. Nowhere else is Jubilee even mentioned in Scripture. The key verse I gave in verse 9, then you shall cause the trumpet of Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall make the trumpet to the sound to sound throughout all your land. Now I grew up near Zion, Illinois. The city was founded by a pastor. His name was John Alexander Dowie. And on July 14th in, ninth, in the year 1900, hundreds of people came to Zion City. That's what it was called back then. They had an all-day affair where at the end of the day, they dedicated the city to God. Now, John Dowie would die just a mere seven years after dedicating the city, and it would never become the place that he envisioned it to be, a place where his congregation, this is his desire, could be free from the evils of the world, a city where God ruled. So today, I believe it is till to this day, they celebrate their city's founding uh, during Labor Day weekend, so it would have just happened, with a festival called Jubilee's, Jubilee Days. And uh, this went on every year annually as I was growing up. For me, it basically meant after Jubilee days, we had to go to school. <laughs> so it was the end of summer. For me, it was the last hurrah, end of summer, start of school the very next day. But it was a celebration. It was meant to be a celebration of the harvest and God's blessing upon their community. Today, they try to celebrate the uniqueness of Zion's heritage because they don't want people to know that it was actually formed by a pastor and has a very churchy background. So they try to uh, rid all that, and too bad. But that is not what Jubilees is to be. It was a year of Sabbath rest given to the land every 50th year. But it, chapter 25 doesn't begin with that. It begins with the sabbatical year. In verses 1 through 8, the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Say to them, when you come into the land which I give you, then you shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field. Six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath, a solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. 
what grows of its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap nor gather the grapes of your untended vine for it is the year of rest for the land and the sabbath produced in the land shall be food for you for you the male and female servants your hired man your strangers who dwell with you for your livestock for your beasts are in the land it's all produce shall be for food so every seven years this sabbatical year every seven years they were allowed their land to rest they were not to plow not to plant not to prune not to harvest rather they were to trust yahweh for their in provisions Exodus 23, 10 and 11 says, Six years you shall sow your land and gather its produce, but in the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. The poor of your people may eat, and what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do in your vineyard and your olive groves. So they were not to even harvest what grew, but it was to be given over to the poor. You'd have people roaming through your property, you were to trust in the Lord. Let the land rest. But I kind of like this. It's a beautiful design. Think about this. Consider, and I'm just thinking about myself. Next year would be another year that I did not add in these notes. But I've been working since I was 16. I had some jobs when I was 14 and 15, but consistently since I was 16 years old. So that means at the ages of 23, 29, 36, 43, 50, and 57, I should have had Sabbath rest. Let the land go f- fallow. I, I just think about that. If, they, if they're farmers, I mean, they still had to care for their animals, but they're not out in the fields. They're not tending the vineyards. They're not doing the normal things that they would be doing. So it was really uh, a break, more of a time to be with the family and to trust in the Lord. Every sixth year, they were to slow down as far as work was concerned. Not to stop working. They had stuff to do, but to slow down. That would be sweet, wouldn't it? But then came the year of Jubilee, verses 18 through 17. I'll read the context. You shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times, seven years. And the time of the seven Sabbaths of the year shall be to you 49 years. Then you shall call... Caused the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year, proclaim liberty through all the land and its inhabitants. It is a year of Jubilee for you. Each of you shall return to his possession. Each of you shall return to his family. That 50th year shall be a Jubilee to you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord, nor gather the grapes that is untended of your untended vine, for it is the jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its produce from the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession. If you sell anything for your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another according to the number of years after the jubilee you shall buy from your neighbor according to the number of years of crops he shall sell to you according to the multiple of the years you shall increase its price according to the fewer number of years you shall diminish its price for he sells it to you according to the number of years of crops therefore verse 17 you shall not oppress one another but you shall fear god i am the lord your god so 
counting seven sabbatical years, they get to the 49th year, they have a year of rest. Then on the Day of Atonement, they blast the trumpet and declare the year of Jubilee. So in the 49th and 50th years, they had two years where the land was to lay fallow. And if you least, it was kind of a, God says, all the land is mine. So technically, the Israelis did not own their property. God owned it. God leased it to them. And God says, the land that I lease to you, if you lease it to someone else, it's going to be based off the year of Jubilee. If you lease it right after the year of Jubilee and you have 49 years of crop, then you base the price of the land for the 49 years of crop that would come out of that. Uh, if you only have two years left, then you lease it before Jubilee then you base the price off the two years. Every 50th year, there was to be this year of Jubilee where everything reverted back to the people. In verse 10, they called it a year of liberty and return. So people were set free. Jewish Jews had uh, sold themselves into slavery with their Jewish brethren. And even the... Um, Sojourners who dwelt among them, the Gentiles who dwelt among them, were to be released in the year of Jubilee. People who had sold their property because of mismanagement it, by the parents, the grandparents, it returned to the family. And so the next generation at least had a shot of making it, and they're not living with the debt of their parents or grandparents. So everything was valued based off the year of Jubilee. And they were not to oppress one another over the land. God, God said, fear me. It's my land anyways. And then he promised in the year of Jubilee, verses 18 through 22, you shall observe my statutes, keep my judgments, perform them. You shall dwell in the land in safety. And the land will yield its fruit. And you shall eat your fill. And you shall dwell in safety. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year, since we shall not sow or gather our produce, then I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year. Bring forth produce enough for three years, and you shall sow in the eighth year and eat the old produce until the ninth year, until the produce comes in. You shall eat the old harvest. So God said, don't worry about the 49th and 50th year. I got it. I'll make sure you guys are provided for and you'll be fine. Not only that, I'll keep you safe during that time. Now, some commentators try to shorten the length of time, but every time they try to, well, it wasn't really a whole year. It was just a set period of time. Then why in the world did God say, I would provide enough produce for three years? Well, it's not really three years. It was just maybe three months. I don't know. They always have to try to just, if they try to justify one verse. They have to look at all the verses that might connect to that. So God provided blessing for three years. That would be perfect. The 49th year and the 50 year, uh, years of Ju uh, Sabbath rest and a year of Jubilee. So no planting, no pruning, no harvesting done in those two years. God said in this year, I'll give you such a bumper crop that it'll last you until the harvest of the ninth year. I'll take care of you. So we just have to trust in God. Psalm 4, 8, David learned this. I will lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. 23 through 34 talks about the land use, talking about 
And I'm just going to summarize this for you. But um, if they got in trouble and needed to sell land, it was all based off of the year of Jubilee, how many harvests until the year of Jubilee or after the year of Jubilee. That was the value of the land. But once the year of Jubilee came, that land reverted back to the family. If the person sold themselves, a Jewish man could only be sold for uh, six years, then redeemed on the seventh year. But there was also that uh, release in the year of Jubilee as well. So no matter where he was in that time period, in the Jubilee, he would be released. So the land was like that. If someone sold a house in a walled city, he had only a year to redeem it. If he didn't get the house back within that year, then it stayed the property of the person who bought it. And uh, the Levites, it would go on to talk about them. They could not do this. God said, it all, it's all mine. I gave it to the Levites. The Levites are my inheritance. So they were kind of out of this deal. So God, who owned the land, had a right to tell Israel how they should use the land. And so he made methods. What I really love about this is that by the sabbatical years and the land laying fallow, every six years, the seventh year, you had that semi-year of rest for the land, but also for the people, although they had responsibilities during that time. It was a break from the normal routine of life. And then the year of Jubilee, everything reverted back to the tribal inheritance that they had received. So God divided the nation into 12 divisions of 12 tribes. And this is a way that the tribal lands would remain with the tribe. Uh, today, they would so mess it up that, you know, you wouldn't know who belonged where. But it was a way that they always be part of their tribe, identify either as the tribe of Judah or Benjamin or Dan, wherever they might have come from. In 1 John 3, 16 and 17, it says, even the sojourners, they were to be treated well. And John talks about this saying, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. We also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods, see his brother in need, shuts up his heart from him. How does he have the love of God? How does the love of God abide in him? So they were to care for the poor also, verses 35 through 38. He said, if one of your brethren becomes poor, falls into poverty, then you shall help him, not like the stranger or like a stranger or sojourner that he may live with you. Take no ushery or usury, um, no interest from him, but fear the Lord God. You're just supposed to help and you're to lend freely to your brother. And so that's why I was reading 1 John 3, 16 and 17. Uh, we shouldn't have an ulterior motive when we help and serve others. And then he deals with slavery in verses 39 through 55. Verses 39 through 43 dealt with Jewish slaves who sold themselves to their brethren uh, as they were to be treated as hired servants, not as slaves or as sojourners, and they would be freed or for the Jews, they were either freed in the seventh year. They couldn't serve beyond six years. But also in verse 40, it says, 
as a hired servant, the sojourner, he shall be with you, he shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. So everything was kind of washed clean at that point, and you got to start over. And the reason why, he said in verse 42 and 43, for you were my servants, whom I bought out of the land of Egypt, they shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over them with rigor, but you shall fear God. God's saying, I redeemed you, and so you don't treat your brothers and sisters as if they have not been redeemed by me. So Gentile slaves, though they didn't have these same freedoms, slaves from other nations, whether male or female, they were able to keep in their families. This was the culture of the day at that time. It talks about that in verses 45 through 55. In fact, it says in verse 46, you may take them as an inheritance for your children after you to inherit them as a possession. So not that we regard slavery here today in the United States, but that was the custom of the people at that time. But the Gentile slaves were not to be released during the year of Jubilee. But the Jews or the Gentiles were not to be, um, as slaves, they were not to be put under rigor. And I, I believe this is largely because that's what Egypt did to Israel. In Exodus one thirteen. it says, the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And God said, you're not going to do that to your servants. And even the wealthy Gentiles, in verses 47 through 55, they could have Jewish servants, slaves, but unlike Gentile slaves, they were to be released on the year of Jubilee. So the Jews were always to be set free during this time in the year of Jubilee, referred to here in Leviticus 25. So it says in verses 53, let's back up, verse 52, but if there remains but a few years until the Jubilee, then he shall be reckoned with him. So if somebody wants to redeem his brother out of slavery, they would deem it off the year of Jubilees, how much lost wages would be lost. According to the years, he shall repay the price of his redemption. He shall be with him as a yearly hired servant. He shall not rule with rigor, over him in your sight, verse 54. If he is not redeemed in this year, he shall be released in the year of Jubilee. He and his children with him, verse 55, the children of Israel are servants to me. They are my servants who I bought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So everything was based off the year of Jubilee. We'll get to talk about the year of Jubilee one more time next week as chapter 27 uh, deals with it and redemption at that time. So the year of Jubilee has always seemed like such a wonderful celebration of God's provision in that God promised to give them enough produce to get them through the years of not planting, pruning, harvesting. It also meant that things would slow down for the people. Every seven years in the sabbatical rest, every 49th and 50th year, the problem with Israel is that they never trusted God to provide for them in the way that God had planned, never celebrated one jubilee. We don't have it recorded in Scripture anywhere. 
But it tells, does tell us in Scripture that when God sent them into 70 years of captivity, he calculated the 70 years of captivity for all the years of Jubilee that they had missed and had not celebrated. And God basically said, the land will have its rest. So if you don't want to do it my way, I'll make sure that it gets done, but you won't like it. It's probably good that we should trust in God's provision, that we find our true rest in his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and not try to come up with some other method of the Christian life, but simply trust and obey. Father, thank you for your word and for teaching us, Lord, in these Old Testament passages dealing with the children of Israel, but even in dealing with the children of Israel, we can learn truths that are applicable to the day and age that we live in. May it be, Lord, that we would not treat anyone with rigor that may be under our authority, but we would treat them with kindness, knowing, Lord, that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are the redeemed of the Lord. We belong to you. And so help us conduct ourselves as such. Also, Lord, as we worship, may it be a community of worship. Israel had an opportunity to share in the giving of the oil that was used for lighting the menorah, uh, the grain that was used in baking the bread of the presence that was set there in the holy place of the temple before the Lord. And Lord, though we may have different abilities, we can all share, Lord, in the work of the ministry. Each one, Lord, doing their part in the ministry that you've called us to in this day and age that we live in. It's not by mistake, Lord, that we live in such troubling times. Though these times may be troubling, help us to stand tall in faith and live accordingly that we might be lights in our community and witnesses of the great work that Jesus is doing in our lives. This we pray this night in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand together. For those who will be with us on Sunday, we're going to be closing out the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew's Gospel, Chapter 7, finishing up. That's be the sixth week that we've been in that uh, sermon, three chapters and we're going to be closing it out finally and uh, look forward to being with you this coming Sunday. I pray that God would bless you, keep you, that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace. God bless.